Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a lecture called The Kingdom of God Given at the Village Church in Flower Mound, Texas. Amen. What a great start to the night. Let me introduce our speaker for the night. Dr. Jonathan Pennington serves as professor of New Testament interpretation at Southern Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He has his PhD from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. He currently serves as the director of research doctoral studies at Southern Seminary, so he oversees the PhD program. He's the author of a few books, specifically the two that we've already highlighted tonight, uh, How to Read the Gospels Wisely and the Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing. One of the things that I love about Dr. Pennington Uh, I guess two things that I love about Dr. Pennington is he's not just an academic. He serves in the context of the church. He preaches regularly and serves regularly at Sojourn Community Church, which is where my wife and I were members when we were in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, He's a wonderful preacher as well as teacher, but he's also a family man. He has a beautiful wife, Tracy, and a lovely, lovely uh, group of kids as well. I'm also grateful for his warm friendship. He's served as a confidant for me for a long time as a warm, warm friend. So I could not be more pleased to introduce you to Jonathan Pennington. Would you please give him a round of applause? Hey, well, it is great to be here. Uh, I've come down here the last few Januarys, and uh, it's going to sound like a comedian, you know, coming to town, this is my favorite city or something. I don't mean that, but it is actually my, one of my very favorite places to go and speak and teach because of the just absolutely beautiful people that are here. So thank you for having me. And thank you uh, for not just bringing your kids for the free childcare and then going on a date night. Thanks for coming to this instead. Maybe this is your date night for some of you. That's pretty awesome. So that's great. Good. So... Anyways, we are going to be talking about the kingdom of God tonight, but to introduce it, I want to um, think with you for a minute about some maps. Okay, here's, here's a map that you're probably familiar with and maybe frustrated with driving around sometimes. Here's one map of DFW area. Uh, here's another sort of version of it, a more kind of cartoon version that's highlighting different things. Uh, here's a map of zip codes, a little blurry, sorry, but the same area done in zip codes. Uh, here's a map of the rail system in the Dallas area. Here's a map, in case you're interested, of the drought monitoring uh, areas. And here uh, is a map of all the IHOPs in the area, in case you're interested as well. And then finally, here's a map of uh, the various places that the Fort Worth Health Inspections um, part of the government is required to visit, uh, marked by different things. So here's the question. Which of these maps of the DFW area is true, right? And which one is the right map? Well, what's obvious is that there are many, many different maps you could make of any area, and I just showed you a few of them, almost an infinite number of ways that you could map out an area or approach describing an area. And really, the the question is not which of them is true, which is them right, but what does each kind of map give you? What kind of information does it give you? And I start with that illustration because tonight we are going to be talking about a massive 
area, a massive topic, a massive idea that we call the kingdom of God. And really, there's not just one map to get at it. There are many, many different ways to think about this. And if you have a handout, I think the, the section is the multiplicity maps. And the second one is a shout out to, I've got six kids, a lot of teenagers. That means a lot of video games go on in my house, including me as well. I, I'm just the fodder for them to beat up in in video games, basically. And one of the things from video games is maps that you haven't unlocked yet. You know, there's like levels you haven't unlocked. I think of that as an analogy of what we're going to do tonight. Tonight, I am going to talk about the kingdom of God for our time together, but I'm very aware that there are all different levels of the kingdom of God or different areas of the kingdom of God we're not going to be able to talk about or different maps, different ways that we could approach it. For example, um, we could talk about the kingdom of God um, in terms of Christology or what it tells us about who Jesus is as king. That would be one sort of map of it. We could talk about it in Trinitarian ways. We could talk about the kingdom of God in connection with what it means for God to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We could talk about the map uh, in theological ways, like or the kingdom of God, like how does it relate to the cross and the idea of atonement or ecclesiology in the church? How does the kingdom of God intersect with those other theological ideas? We could talk about the map of the kingdom of God in historical terms. How have different Christians appropriated and thought about what the kingdom of God is in ancient times as well as today? Um, and we could t- talk about it in terms of contemporary applications, um, the issues of how do we as Christians relate as members of the kingdom to society, etc. All of those are different maps that are all valuable to do, all different avenues of getting at this massively beautiful and important topic. And I, I mentioned those not to overwhelm you about all the things we're not going to do, but just to give, give you a sense that what we are going to do tonight is only one slice of this beautiful, beautiful subject of the kingdom of God. And what we're going to do, though, I think is probably the best place to start. We're going to focus on the biblical witness to what the idea of the kingdom of God is. I want us to really listen to what the Bible's voice has to say about this, acknowledging that those other approaches are well also very valuable, the theological approaches, but I think it's very important to start here. And so my plan for tonight is to uh, bring the heat and bring the meat, as I told JT on the way here. I've got a lot of things to say. Um, we're, we're gonna, I'm going to have a lot of content from the biblical witness about this. But then at the end, we're also going to uh, have some time for Q&A, as JT said, and kind of address a little bit of implications and applications as well. So where we are uh, in the next stage, then, is stepping onto the road. And the first point here of getting onto the roadmap of understanding the kingdom is just to have some comments and have some thoughts together about the centrality of this idea of the kingdom. Because so far I've said all this stuff, but I kind of need to back up and say, why this topic? Why the kingdom of God? And after all, I thought Christianity, some of you might be saying, was the story or the message about God forgiving my sins through Jesus' death on the cross, and then uh, me telling other people about that and seeing other people come into that knowledge of God and forgiveness as well. What in the world does that have to do with the kingdom of God? And so what I'm going to do is try to explain to you that actually those are not unrelated. And in fact, that the kingdom of God is in some ways even more central to the whole message of the Bible than what I just said, although the idea of forgiveness of sins is absolutely essential as well. The reason we're going to spend a whole evening together thinking about the kingdom of God is because I'd like to suggest to you that the kingdom of God is an absolutely essential and central idea to the whole understanding of the message of Holy Scripture and really of God himself. This is not just an image that's of secondary importance. 
This is not just biblical theologians and scholars having something new to talk about. I'm going to suggest to you that this is actually central, the kingdom of God, to the whole witness of Scripture itself. Let me just put a couple of quotes before you. I think these might be in your handout as well. The concept of the kingdom of God involves, in a very real sense, the total message of the Bible, John Bright has said. The unique idea of the rule of God over creation, over all creatures, over the kingdoms of the world in a unique and special way, over his chosen and redeemed people is the very heart of the message of the Hebrew Scriptures. This expectation of the coming of God's kingship of the future has such a prominent importance in the scope of the prophetic divine revelation that it may be called the center of the whole Old Testament promise of salvation. And finally, since all of Yahweh's activity can be subsumed under the idea of the kingdom of God, this one image or idea has good credentials for being a comprehensive designation of God's relationship with his creatures. So that's Most of that's about the Old Testament. Some of that's more broad than that. But also, when you think about the New Testament, it's very easy to see the dominance of the uh, kingdom of God theme. After all, what does Jesus say right when he enters into his ministry? He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and we'll, we'll come back to that. The question, though, to start is, what about the Old Testament? Is the kingdom the main theme there? And in fact, I think you can easily argue that, and I'm going to show you this in a couple of ways, but just to, at the basic level to acknowledge that even though the phrase, the kingdom of God, doesn't appear very often in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, God is actually referred to as king a lot of times in the Old Testament, many words for God's kingdom as well. And then, of course, and we'll come back to this here in a little bit, but of course, the idea of the Davidic kingdom, and David as the great king is going to be the first thing that should come to mind when we think about the kingdom of the Old Testament, and that's certainly um, what should come to mind for us, as well as the Psalms talk a lot about God as king. But I'm just kind of casting some lines because we're going to get back to this here in a minute. The first point, the point here right at the beginning, is just simply to suggest to you that, again, the kingdom of God is worth our study tonight because it truly is a central idea. But let's drill down a little bit more, though, and ask, what does that even mean to talk about the kingdom of God? And after all, in our current time, and especially here in the United States and really all of North America, our associations for a king or a queen are not very strong, and I suggest to you, probably not very biblical. I mean, we all love the Queen of England. The crown rocks. We're all into it. That's fine. God save the queen, all that. And the only other kings and queens we probably have are like homecoming kings and queens, which aren't exactly positions of great authority except for in the currency of high school popularity, but no real authority. And then I know from having enough Texas friends that then you have this added crazy mum element to it, right? And afterwards, you can all show me your crazy mum pictures. I've seen plenty of those. I know there's that. But really, kings and queens are not something that make a lot of sense to us. So what does the Bible mean by the kingdom of God? Well, let's think for a minute about nouns, okay? Let's think about um, concrete versus abstract nouns. Think about, for example, uh, a jar of pickles, right? As soon as we put those words up there, a concrete image of a jar of pickles came to mind for you. And when we think about concrete nouns like that, um, those phrases especially evoke images in us, and they also especially focus on what we'd say the denotative, the pointing out part of language. Not as much of the connotative. There might be some 
connotative element. Maybe somebody threw a jar of pickles at you once and you're still mad about it. So you have like a connotative element of it or something. But mostly concrete nouns focus on the reference. This refers to something else. But then if you think about abstract nouns like economics or justice or love, something different happened in your brain there. You weren't able to sort of come up with an image as much. And these kind of abstract nouns more uh, are, are more on the connotative side. They they have a, they sort of evoke a bigger idea that isn't always totally definable in your mind. You'd have to kind of talk more specifically about what it means. Well, I'd like to suggest to you. I, I use this example because when we think about the kingdom of God, we might first think of it in some sort of denotative sense or concrete sense. But really, the kingdom of God is one of these bigger abstract things that's harder to get our mind around. And when we hear it, there are certain things that go on in our minds that are probably, again, um, maybe not really well-defined and probably not specifically biblical. And let me explain what I mean. Um, in the field, one of the fields I work in is called cognitive linguistics. And in this field, one of the things that is talked about is the fact that when our brains and when we encounter language... One of the ways it's described is that scripts run for us. That, In other words, when you and I encounter language, and in fact it varies quite a bit across all of us, there are things that happen in our brains and our bodies that are related to what we, what we would associate with that word. So, for example, if I say the word house, something happened, you envisioned something, and then there's a whole bunch of things that went along with that in your body and in your brain when I envision house. And then there's a whole bunch of things that were not triggered for you. I bet when I said house, most of you did not think of an igloo, for example, because your cultural encyclopedia or your cultural scripts are not that. And most of us did probably, probably also when I said house, did not think of place where we put um, our dead loved ones before we bury them. Right? That's probably not a sort of cultural thing, although that's a, a, a script that would have been, that would have run for house for many people today and in much of history. You probably also didn't think of the place where we have our children, we birth our children. Some of you did. Um, think of that. Maybe you had a home birth when we lived in Scotland, which is the home of midwifery. Um, that's like a, a strong midwife place. A lot of people had home births. So in Scotland, home or house might run scripts of home birthing more than it does for most people probably in the United States. And that's the point. Every kind of image, concrete or abstract, runs scripts for us. We, we have a, a way of understanding the world that's part of our own cultural embeddedness that is evoked when we, when we hear something. Now, that's okay. There's no problem with that. It just that means that when we study the Bible and when we read the Bible and when we talk in church about certain things, even things we hear a lot like kingdom of God, there's no guarantee, in fact, I can guarantee the opposite, that the scripts that run for you and me are probably not exactly what the scripts that would run for someone in the Hebrew times or in Jesus' day as well. And part of our work as students of the Bible and followers of Jesus today, 2,000 years later, is to try to understand by examining Scripture, by examining uh, how theologians have talked, what are the best scripts, what are the best ways to understand what's being evoked with this massive idea of the kingdom of God. And I think we kind of have our work cut out for us because we don't have associations, again, for kings and queens that are like the biblical ones at all. And so that's what we're going to try to get at. And in fact, 
um, when we think about the kingdom of God, I'd suggest to you that it's best to think of it like what's called a tensive symbol, as your kind of fancy phrase for tonight, as opposed to a steno symbol, something like the Greek letter pi, that's what we would call a steno symbol. It equals something, 3.14159, etc. That's a symbol that evokes a one direct thing. The kingdom of God is not a symbol that evokes one thing. It actually is a symbol that evokes a whole range of ideas, a whole range of visions of who God is that are consistent but also varied as well. And for those of you who will be with me tomorrow, this is what we're going to do in the training institute. We're going to go through each of the Gospels and say, how do each of these Gospels contribute to this very elaborate picture of what the kingdom of God is? But for tonight, I want to give you a, a, a strong sense of the biblical symbol that the kingdom of God is. And I give you here on your handout then a couple of definitions before we get to that. Um, one from an excellent book uh, by Jeremy Treat on the kingdom and atonement. And he defines the kingdom, this big idea, in two phases that are really helpful. The first phase, he says, is about the design of the creation itself. The, the kingdom, the creation itself is designed as a kingdom idea. We'll come back to this in a moment. But his argument, his point is that from Genesis 1 and 2 on, from the creation accounts, the goal of creation is God reigning over the earth through humanity, through his vice regents. We'll come back to that. And then the second phase of it is that the coming of the kingdom in redemption, that after the fall from Genesis 3 on, then God's work in the world, really from Genesis 3, 3 on to the end of Revelation, can be described as the kingdom coming in redemption. So that's a helpful way to get at it, to kind of hint that the whole message of the Bible can be understood this way. Here's another definition by an older scholar named Eugene Boring, which I feel really bad. That's, you know, I've got Professor Boring for class this afternoon. I mean, that's, that would be a horrible thing to have to say, but he was a very good scholar. I'm sure I know he was. I've read quite a bit of his stuff, but that's his name. Uh, the kingdom of God is, he says, the tensive symbol, this idea that it's evoking a whole image, that evokes the story of God the Creator, first who's been active in history to preserve His people, and who will soon act definitively at the denouement, or the penultimate part of history, to defeat the powers which He's hitherto permitted to operate in the cosmos, to reassert His rule over His rebellious creation, which is at present de jour, and I'll explain that, His kingdom, but will become de facto His kingdom only through this eschatological act. So that's a little fancier way of saying it, but it's actually quite similar. The idea is God rules and has always ruled, and he's at work in the Bible and in real history of humans establishing his kingdom. And those the, those two phrases are important. God does rule by right, as you are right now, but he will fully rule when he brings his kingdom upon the earth de facto, in complete fact. Right, So that sort of tension between God reigning now in design and creation, but yet not reigning fully. But we can still ask, okay, so I'm just kind of circling towards it, what does this really look like to talk about the kingdom of God in the Bible? Well, the best way to do it is actually to turn to the text and to kind of trace the story through of how God works out his reign upon the earth. Okay, And so to do that, I'm going to gladly, gladly acknowledge that I'm getting a lot of help here from an excellent book that I think many of you have read already, but I'd recommend to all of you. It's by Craig Bartholomew and Michael Goheen. It's called The Drama of Scripture, and I'm sure JT can give you information about that if you'd like. 
and it's a really nice way of thinking about the Bible. And I was just want to kind of using some of their ideas and filling in some others with my own. I want to show you what's going on in this theme of the kingdom of God. And what they do is they put the whole Bible together in this series of what they call six acts, like a play, six different acts. You can see it here on the screen um, that trace through the whole Bible. And what they do before, before they walk through this, they ask a very good question. They say, is the kingdom of God really the best way to put the whole Bible together? Because actually there's some other candidates that might work well. For example, how about the idea of covenant? Covenant's a really good idea, a good way to think about putting the whole Bible together. Because after all, God makes covenant with Adam and Eve, these relationships, these contractual relationships. He makes covenant with Moses, with Abraham before that, with Isaac and Jacob, with Moses, with David, with Solomon, and it goes on and on with Noah earlier. So a lot of people would think about putting the whole Bible together as covenant, but then when you get to the New Testament, it becomes really clear that, again, Jesus' main ministry is kingdom. Well, part of the genius of what Bartholomew and Goheen show is that those two ideas of covenant and kingdom are not really in competition because even though they don't sound like similar ideas to us, those are really two sides of the same coin or two sides of the same door into Holy Scripture. Because you see, the idea, again, it's a a different script that runs for you and me, but the idea in the ancient world of a king and a kingdom was someone who would rescue a people gather them together, deliver them, and protect them, and make a covenantal relationship with them. This is what a king's relationship to a people in the ancient world was. It was one where someone provided services of rescue and protection and wisdom and guidance in legal issues and and social issues. Often the king was considered a philosopher, a sage, a wise person. And the deal was that the king and his sons or the queen would provide that service, provide that um, protection and wisdom. And the result is that the people would provide obedience or fealty or loyalty or allegiance. And so you see the idea that is very different for us when we think about a homecoming king or queen or just a ceremonial queen of England or something, very different idea. The idea of a kingdom and a covenant are deeply embedded with each other. And they're real, and getting at that will help us understand what's going on in the Bible. In other words, when God talks about making covenants, he's doing that as a king. And when he talks about being king, that understanding of that is that that's in a covenantal relationship. So this is why I, along with Greg and Mike and others, think that this is a very good way to put the whole Bible together. And so these six acts are super helpful. God establishing his kingdom and creation, rebellion, choosing Israel, waiting for an ending, and then into the New Testament in Act 4 and 5 and 6. So what I want to do is just kind of do a very fast, but um, with some details, run through of what these six acts look like in our Bibles. Now, if you're going to, if you're Try to keep up. It's going to be too fast. I'm not going to be landing in a lot of text tomorrow. For those of you with us tomorrow, I'll, I'll go more in depth into a lot of texts. But today, I want to kind of give the the big overview of the whole thing. So here is a brief and fast, keep your hats on, overview of the theme of the kingdom of God in the Bible using this sort of six-act scheme. So here we go. First of all, act one. In the creation, 
we see that God is the one who created and then sustains everything. This is a big part of the claim of Genesis, that in the beginning, God was at work. No other gods. He was the sole God who did all this. And he establishes his rule, and we understand him as the sovereign one or the king of creation. And why do we get that? Well, it's no accident that the image of the creation takes place where? Just shout it out. A garden, okay? Now, again, the scripts that run for garden for you and me are carrots, tomatoes, maybe something like that. Garden in England means what we would call a front or a yard, but yard in British English means like junkyards. They wouldn't say that, right? So garden is a little different script in British English. But in ancient, of course, it's not English in the ancient world, but the word that we would translate as garden today is, a, is again, a very different script. The construal or the understanding within ancient cultures was that a garden was not the place where average people like you and me grow carrots and tomatoes. A garden was something that a king has. Only a king has a garden. It's more like if you maybe see on a Jane Austen, you know, really fancy estate or something, but even more like the Babylonian, famous Babylonian hanging gardens, one of the seven wonders of the world. In other words, the very image of a garden, which to you and me doesn't sound like a royal image, for sure in the ancient world, any person reading the Hebrew Bible or the, or the, the New Testament as well would understand that the image of a garden is very much a royal image. And so it's not an accident right in the beginning that God creates Adam and Eve and puts them in a garden. That's an image first of God as a king ruling over creation, but then it also is an image of Adam and Eve as kings and queens, because, or as a king and queen, and then their descendants as well, because the people that are in the garden are there serving, granted God is the ultimate king, but we like to use the word vice-regents. Adam and Eve are depicted as ones who are, note first, made in the image of God and are given authority to what? To rule over creation. Now, they're going to blow it, right? And we continue to blow it as well. But the idea is that Adam and Eve are very much created as vice-regents set in a garden All of that is deeply royal imagery. And this idea of the image of God is a very beautiful, complex one. And theologians will point out a lot of different things that the image of God means. Well, One of them for sure means the idea that God is stamping himself into this clay. He's breathing his own life into this dirt and this rib by which he makes humanity, his own image being on it means that the things that are true about God as a ruler in particular are put onto Adam and Eve. The image is that the first humans and us as well, all the way down, although our, the image in a God of us is very broken, still the idea is that we are his sub-rulers. He is the king of the universe places us in the garden, gives us a mandate to it to control and order, be wise and shepherd the animals in a sense and tend the garden and cultivate it. All of that is beautiful royal imagery that comes from God's authority himself. But then, of course, act two happens. The tragic rebellion, the tragic story of rebellion, the viceroy, Adam, and his helpmate, Eve, abdicate their responsibility. They fall into rebellion against God. And the result is twofold. First, there's judgment. 
they're banished from the garden and separated from God. But secondly, there's also grace. And rather than destroying them completely, God gives them a new, albeit lower and harder life, but a, a new life that is outside of the garden. They're in, the image of God in us is cracked, and yet he promises a future redemption. And so as Genesis continues, then God increasingly reveals himself. Even while the world is increasingly rebellious against him, the, from chapter 3 through 11 of Genesis is just a spiraling down, as you know, if you've read it, uh, spiraling down towards worse and worse. Finally, God even floods the whole earth and starts over with Noah, but still it is just wickedness upon wickedness until finally we meet a very important man, Abraham. And although Abraham was no one of particular importance, God sets Abraham apart and calls him into a unique covenantal relationship with himself, and he gives Abraham one of the greatest promises of Scripture, that God will bless or multiply him super abundantly to be a blessing, to be God's kingly covenant relationship, to spread it to all the nations. So, from dealing with the universally with the world, God now brings it down to one man and says, through you, I'm going to do what a king does to his people, bless. I'm going to bless all the world, all the nations will be blessed through you, through one person. And that begins from Genesis 12 on, the great story of Israel. The result, um, after many trials and tribulations then, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is finally the creation of what we would call the people of Israel. Abraham receives his son of the promise. You probably, most of you know and remember the story, Isaac. Isaac passes the same kind of kingly blessing onto his son, Jacob. God renames Jacob Israel. Jacob has 12 sons, and they form the 12 tribes of Israel. And all the while, every generation of these Jewish people is looking backward to the promises of Abraham and forward to the time when God will fulfill them. There's a hope that God is going to restore his reign upon the earth through these people. And through the remarkable provision of God, Israel and his 12 sons uh, end up in Egypt because there's this horrible famine. They end up under another king, the greatest king of the day, the Pharaoh. And what happens? In this beautiful image Joseph ends up being the vice-regent of the Pharaoh through this amazing twist and turns of through prison. He ends up second in command and ends up sparing Israel from destruction. But as the generations proceed, the book of uh, end of Genesis and the Exodus tells us, the years pass, the Israelites finally find themselves no longer ruling over Egypt in a position of power, but instead at the bottom, they're now slaves to the Egyptians. And that continues for about four centuries, so longer than the United States has existed as a country, right? They're slaves in Egypt, and they're longing for God to be their king, not the Pharaoh. And finally, so you know the story, God raises up then, still here in, we're in Act 3 now, God raises up the great man, Moses. And who was Moses? He was Pharaoh's adopted son, right? A very high viceroy in, in Egypt as well. 
But then he goes from being that because one day he kills an Egyptian who he sees striking a fellow Jew. So he has to flee. And for 40 years, he goes from this height of being a viceroy in in Egypt to being a nobody shepherd on the backside of a nowhere mountain. And then God calls him back. You know the story of the burning bush. Calls him back to be the greatest leader of these multiplied millions of the Israelites. And God shows forth his kingly power through Moses over all of nature, over every human king, by finally bringing the Pharaoh to his knees. The king bows down and finally says, go, your God is more powerful, go. And that's the most important historical event of the Jewish history, the Israel history, is what we call the Exodus. It's when God brings his people out of Egypt heading toward the promised land and promises to be their God. He brings them out, and you see the image of a king. He rescues his people, and he brings them out, and what does he do? Well, he takes them to a mountain, and he makes a covenant with them, right? And along the way, he rescues them, the famous Red Sea. Do you remember what they say when he rescues them? Do you remember the words that they sing, the hymn that they sing? They they say, um, in celebration, the Lord shall reign forever and ever, Exodus 15, 18. So the image is he's their king, he rescues them, and he takes them then to Mount Sinai and gives them a covenantal relationship. I will be your God. The idea is I will be your king, and you will be my people. I will provide for you, protect you, bless you, give you wisdom in my law on how to live together and how to live in relationship with me. And what do the Israelites owe him? Loyalty, allegiance, love. You can sum it up with loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. But of course, all sounds great. They also blow it. While he's on the mountain getting the covenantal king law, he comes down and finds they've made a golden statue, right? So they don't even get a day into the covenant and they've already blown it, right? Sounds familiar how your New Year's resolution's doing really well, right? Just like Adam and Eve, God responds in this twofold way, judgment, many of them die. In fact, a whole generation doesn't get to enter the promised land. They're laid waste in the wilderness, and yet there's grace. God promises to still bless them, and he preserves for the next generation faithful ones to himself. And it's at this point in Israel's history that the reality of God's kingdom being established through the descendants of Abraham is actually almost completely lost, so it seems. Because there's this 40-year period um, where most all the Israelites die, basically. the next Their children enter into the Promised Land. But even under Joshua... There's some brief successes, Battle of Jericho, et cetera, but there's lots of disaster as well. And then comes this horrible time of the judges, the time when the Israelites, as the book of Judges finally say, do whatever is right in their own eyes. They forget God as their king. They fall under his judgment. Then they get really down. They ask for help. God raises up a ruler, a leader over them. That's what a judge is. It's not like we think of, you know, somebody we elect who just makes decisions behind a, in a fancy room. A judge in the Old Testament is a warrior king. They raise up, restores the land for peace for a little, to peace for a little while. And then they fall back into rebellion and worshiping other gods. The cycle repeats itself, rinse and repeat over and over each time, right? 
Each time God redeems them through various judges, Deborah and Gideon and others, but they always blow it. And they exist like that for generations, really, until finally an enemy people like no, none other rises up, and that's the Philistines. And it's actually the reason we call it Palestine today, that's actually a, just a derivation over centuries of the word Philistine. That's Because the Philistines were the really important people who ended up being a great threat to the Jewish people's existence. Very organized military people. They got nine-foot warriors, right, like Goliath. I mean, they're, they're legit, right? And so they constantly oppressed the Israelites up to the point where the Israelites lose the Ark of the Covenant, <laughs> I mean, of all things, the, the place where the royal deal is sealed, right? Where you have this Ark of the Covenant, and the Israelites are so bad in all this thing that they finally lose it in battles of the Philistines. This is how much the, the uh, Philistines are the great enemies. The one that was made by Moses, they've been carrying around all these years and storing, they finally lose it. And you may remember those stories from the early part of 1 Samuel. The result of all this is Israel says, not, God, we repent. But Israel says, you know what? We need a king. <laughs> the Philistines have a king. All these other nations have a king. We need a king. And so they appeal to God through the prophet Samuel to have a king. And God's response, again, is twofold. First, it's judgment because it's wrong for them to want a king other than God. Because God is their king. He was already their king, and now they're wanting to trust in a human king to lead them. So there's judgment, and there's also grace. He's willing to give them a king if they will trust in him. So he responds in judgment because their desire for a king is really, in many ways, a sin against God, as 1 Samuel says. But he also graciously gives them one, and thereby we form, really, the kingdom of Israel for the first time with a real king. The first king, of course, is who? Saul. He doesn't do too well. He's tall. He's handsome. He's a warrior. It's all that they want. Turns out he has a fundamental heart problem. He cares for the praise of others. He's a fearful person more than one who is wholehearted, devoted to God. And he ends up blowing it. And then in what are my favorite books of the Old Testament and certainly almost of the whole Bible, uh, besides the Gospels, in First and Second Samuel, which are just an absolute delight to read. They blow me away every time. You see this amazing story of Saul. It's, it's a tale of two men, two kings. Saul blowing it while David becomes this amazing king. He's a man, a young man who's wholehearted in every way. He's all sold out for God from the David and Goliath story to harp playing to skinning foreskins off of hundreds of Philistines, you name it, all the things you'd want in a king, right? He, he does it all, right? Writes the salt, much, many of the Psalms. He's a musician. He's everything. He's handsome, right? Multiple wives. We're not encouraging that. But all, all of this, he, he is the great king. He's the man after God's own heart. And it is under David that Israel reaches its highest point as a kingdom. It's about a thousand years before Jesus' day, about 3,000 years ago, Israel reaches its apex. He takes over this city that was owned by some other people and names it, and it becomes what we know as Jerusalem to this day, still debated, of course, in its ownership. Um, but it is it becomes the city of David, and it is the place where the palace is, 
and he has plans and hopes to build the temple of God there as well. God tells him, no, you're a man of bloodshed, so you can't build my temple, but you can set it up and, and your son will. And so David hands off the kingdom to his son Solomon. Of course, David's very imperfect. You remember the story of Bathsheba. Solomon is the child of Bathsheba. Um, but Solomon promises to be a great king. It's consolidating the Israel at its highest point, wealth and all the nations around her in fear. The Ethiopian queen travels to meet Solomon because he's so wise. He's the true kind of philosopher king or sage king. Um, the Egyptians honor him. Everything is great. It's the apex of the kingdom. It's finally arrived, so it seems. All the promises going way back to Adam and Eve seem to arrive. And then what happens? Solomon, the greatest king, son of David, the first son of David, then goes the way of the world and is led away in his heart after other gods. And then even worse than that, under his son, Rehoboam, he causes a civil war, and the ten tribes in the north break apart from the two tribes in the south, and we're never united. And then what happens in the, the centuries and decades to follow, the ten tribes, you read about this in First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings, they have no good kings. They're all kings of Israel, and they're all horrible, worse and worse. Some really notorious ones like Ahab and his wife Jezebel. They kill prophets. They're worshiping idols openly. Uh, all kinds of problems. The ten tribes, finally God completely destroys them by the Assyrians. The two southern tribes, um, which include Judah, David's tribe, they have some good kings, some bad kings, some really bad kings, but they have some good ones, people like Josiah and others who reign well for a while, but it's really a time period uh, that is just declining more and more. And it's at this time that God really begins to send prophets. There were prophets before, but he sends prophets to speak and say, remember God is your true king. Remember the covenant God has made with you. It is worth pursuing him. Some of them, many of them are killed. And finally, um, the two southern tribes, because of their wickedness, come under God's judgment as well and are captured by the great world power of that day then, Babylon in the modern-day Iran area in the Middle East. Yet, in all that loss and grief, and all that tragic history that really goes on in Act 3, God is present, and God is giving hope. Listen to some of the words that he speaks through his prophets. From Isaiah, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they've revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey knows its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They've abandoned the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They've turned away from Him. This is the prophetic word. But then a few chapters later, we hear these words of hope. But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land with contempt, but later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You'll increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. 
For you shall break the yoke of their burden and a staff on their shoulders. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace, his reign. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Incredible words. And I know when I was reading that, gingerbread houses were were scripting for you, right? You were thinking Christmas. And you should think of Christmas because those are texts that the New Testament uses and applies to Jesus. But before that script runs for you, I want you to feel it in what's going on before This is a time of amazing tragedy and and generations of up and down, but increasing tragedy of bad kings and disobedience to God's covenant with the kingdom covenant with his people. And then he speaks these words that there is going to be a king coming who will be perfect, sit on the throne of David, and will be the perfect prince of peace, the perfect one. This is the great hope and the words of encouragement, even in the midst of all this darkness. Just judgment is coming, so beware, but in my grace, I will provide a hope and a future and, and establish my promise to David for there always to be one to reign because God is still reigning. Now, that person came to be known, still not New Testament, but that person came to be known as the Messiah or the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who's anointed in the line of David. That's the great hope. David had been anointed, and the hope was that another was, another was to come. And one of the places you see this notion of the hope for the future is in one of the later prophets in the book that we call Daniel, where you have judgment and grace. He's in Babylon. He's in the place that has captured um, the uh, remaining tribes. And what happens to Daniel? He becomes the viceroy of the whole place of Babylon. Do you see a pattern? Right? This is intentional. Have you ever considered how the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis and the story of Daniel are exactly parallel? The very same thing happens in both stories, at the, at the beginning of the biblical story and at the end of the biblical story. That's not an accident. It's the same pattern. God is captures his, his people are captured and under suffering, and then he raises up an unlikely person who goes in prison and interprets dreams. It's the exact same story. It's quite remarkable. That's intentional. God is tying together the whole story in these different historical events, right? And listen to these words that Daniel has in this vision as he looks forward to the hope of God returning. Daniel 7, 13, and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, like Adam, and he came to the Ancient of Days. He comes before God's throne himself and was presented before him. That's a very royal image. And to him, this this son of man. So the Ancient of Days is there as the king, but then to the son of man who approaches the Ancient of Days is given dominion, that is kingdom and glory and a kingdom, and that so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And this son of man that's gonna, that comes before the Ancient of Days, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. It won't pass away, and his kingdom is one that won't be destroyed. Again, this amazing hope and image that's looking forward to a time coming that is promised from God. A couple of things that happen as we wrap up this sort of phase that we need to be aware of is that the promises of this coming anointed one, this Messiah, the Son of Man, they're actually not given to all of Israel in this sense. 
that already in the prophets you begin to get this discussion of the idea that not everyone who's in the Jewish people is truly aligned with God. That's obvious. But this idea of what we call a remnant, that the prophets start talking about that within the bigger people of Israel, God has a remnant of faithful people whose hearts are his, like the difference between David and Saul. And so this is one thing that is beginning to be to appear in the prophets that's going to be important for the New Testament. And then secondly, there's a revelation in the prophets, we heard it in those that Isaiah chapter 9 reading, that when God reestablishes his kingdom on the earth, it's actually going to go all the way back to Abraham, and it's going to bless all the nations. And that sounds like a really good idea to you and me, but you have to put yourself into the mindset of a Jewish person here in, you know, several hundred years later after the fall of David and Solomon. They have spent centuries, longer than the United States has been a country, centuries being oppressed by one kingdom after another, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, all kinds of other, finally the Greeks and then the Romans, and they are oppressed and beaten up and taxed and killed and enslaved. And so when the prophets say God's going to raise up a king, their primary sense of that is yes, and destroy all of our enemies. But the prophets like Isaiah and Daniel and others say, God's going to raise up a king for you. Yes, he's going to fulfill his promise. But you are going to be a blessing to all nations. And even the Gentiles, the goyim, the outsiders, the oppressors are going to receive the blessings of God. That was in that Isaiah 9 quote. Go back and look at it. A light to the Gentiles will shine upon them. And a lot of the Jews did not like that. And you can understand, I'm not throwing them under the bus. If you and I were completely taken over, let's say next year, some foreign country, I don't know, North Korea or whatever, overran America completely. And for decades, centuries even, we're overrun and enslaved and heavily taxed and oppressed. We don't have rights or dignity for centuries. And then somebody rises up among us and says, hey, God's going to rescue us and we are going to bless our enemies. Most of us would not be very keen on that, right? And this is where Jewish people find themselves as we get into this interlude. This time, then, the last part of Israel's history is recorded in the later prophets, and then we have this time, these few hundred years, where God is at work. We don't have any um, authoritative scriptures, although there's still Jewish writings from this time period. But God is at work. A number of kings rise up among the Israelites, they or among the Jewish people. All of them end up being corrupt. There are times of oppression, times of success under what are called the Maccabeans. We had a time where they came back from Babylon with Ezra, Nehemiah, and then following after that. It's a very mixed time. And basically, the Old Testament and then the what we call the Second Temple period or the Intertestamental period, it really ends on a rather disappointing kind of whimper but with some hope, but it's, it's a very dark and depressed time, longing for a king, longing for God to return, and wondering, is he really going to return? What I've tried to do in this whirlwind tour of the Old Testament is show you that the idea of the kingdom makes sense and really drives what's going on here. It's the promise and the hope that God, it's the truth that God is a king, and the 
his work in the world to establish and then finally return to come as the king to the earth. And this brings us right then up to the text that we're maybe a little bit more familiar with, and that is the New Testament. And on the first page of the New Testament, rightly called Act 4 here, the coming of the king, on the very first page we meet this Harry, Keith Green kind of looking figure, uh, John the Baptist, Jay the B. And what are the f- first words that come out of his mouth, right? I'm proclaiming the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Repent because it's finally here. Now, if you and I don't have that kind of background of the Old Testament story like I just gave you quickly there, when we open the New Testament, that may just sound like kind of a nice idea, right? Again, homecoming king and queen, God save the queen of England, whatever. Not sure what it means. But I hope that once you sort of get this run up and realize this is what God's been about from creation and redemption all the way through, then when John the Baptist opens his mouth and says, repent, because actually the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is here, that runs amazingly important scripts for people. That means all the world to the Jewish people. Well, at least the ones that aren't in cahoots with the Romans. There's only one group of Jewish people or that don't really like John the Baptist's message. That's the ones that are in political power who are, are sellouts with the Romans who are ruling over them. But all the other Jews, the regular people, the Amha Aretz, the people of the land, and the religious people even are curious, the more devout religious people like the Pharisees, and they all go streaming out into the wilderness to the Jordan, the place that's symbolic of them entering the promised land, the river that had been split in part, not the Great Sea, but mimicking that, the the river that had been split apart so that Joshua could lead his people in the promised land, that's where John the Baptist decides to have his ministry, but God sends him there, and everyone streams to him. And what is he saying? He's not saying justification by faith, even though that's important. We'll come back to that. He's saying the message that makes sense to the whole story of the Bible, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn away, just like the prophets did. Turn away from finding your hope and your identity and your life and things other than God and his reign over you because now he is finally coming. And then what does Jesus say? The exact same thing. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. And then all through Jesus' teaching, all his parables are parables about what the kingdom of God is like in unexpected ways. His teaching, his, I mean, his healings. I don't know if you ever consider, why does Jesus heal all these people that then get sick and die later again? Was it just like a you know, magic tricks or something? No, the point of him healing people is, first of all, that he loves people, he's compassionate, but it's because healing is a sign of the kingdom age coming. The great hope is, go back to the prophets, that a time is coming, a time and a place when God will reign with justice and life and the lion will lie down with the lamb and the child will play by the viper's den and there will be no more sickness and no more tears and no more crying. That's the hope when God actually comes to restore to this land flowing with milk and honey and health and relationships and life and greenness in every way. That's why Jesus heals people because those are pictures of a time coming when the kingdom is there. This is why Jesus exercises rulership over creation itself. He walks on water. 
He feeds, he feeds people miraculously. These are images of a time and a place when God will reign perfectly. A great way to get at this in the modern time is to read The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis. You kind of get some of these images of the same kind of thing. And then Jesus is called. He's, he does kingdom work. He's called the king. And one of the most, the clearest places where he is proclaimed and shown to be a king is at the last week of his life when he enters the city of David, Jerusalem. And what do the people say when he comes in? Hosanna to the son of David. And they put palm branches, they wave them, and they're singing and they're praising him. And he comes in just the way David had, uh, humbly on the, on the foal of a donkey. He comes in to praise and honor. And then the most unexpected thing, he's crucified. One of the most topsy-turvy aspects of the entire message of the kingdom is that the king is then crucified and then he raises he rises from the dead and rules and there's more that we could say of course about all that but my point here is just to show you that the kingdom idea of Jesus Jesus is king and his teaching and his actions are entirely in line with what the whole story of the bible's been about here's a great quote from Herman Bavinck For Jesus, the kingdom of God was the purpose of all of his activity, the main content and central idea of his teaching, whose essence, expansion, development, and fulfillment were presented by him in the most variegated way, with and without parables, and moving outward from his own person, he established this kingdom in the hearts of his disciples. And it goes on. We don't have time to look at it in detail, but we could see the same thing in the Gospel of John. We could see the same thing in the book of Acts when the kingdom goes forth through the church. Jesus goes from being the preacher to the one preached. And all throughout, right in Acts 1-3, after Jesus rises from the dead, he spends 40 days with his disciples. And what does it say? It says he's taught them for 40 days about the kingdom of God. And then they say to him in Acts 1.6, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? This is how they're thinking, right? And it goes on in the very last verse of the book of Acts describes Paul's preaching in Rome and house imprisonment as preaching the kingdom of God to all who would listen, right? This is the consistent theme. And then it goes on through Paul's letters, through Peter and James, the book of Revelation pictures a time when God is going to come and finally bring his kingdom from heaven to earth. And it seamlessly goes into the, into the early church as well, beyond the book of Acts and beyond um, the writing of the New Testament, where the church fathers constantly think about and talk about Jesus as king, even though you and I, that isn't the primary image we use now, even though we wouldn't deny it, This was understood in the New Testament and the early church. This is the way to make sense of the whole Bible. And here's a really nice concluding quote. If the New Testament is right, Christ did not come to pluck souls from an evil and worthless creation and transport them to an angelic existence. Instead, he came to announce the beginning of the world's renewal. And what that is, that's talking about God coming and fulfilling his promises of his just and good reign upon the earth through the king. Now, that's the story of the Bible going even all the way through in the book of Revelation, Acts 6. 
We now need to turn and address what I like to call the Protestant elephant in the kingdom room here, and that is, if it's clear that the message of the Old Testament is the kingdom of God, and the message of Jesus and the rest of the New Testament is the kingdom of God, it's a whole Bible reality, but if you and I have been in church at all, however, you probably realize that rarely, if ever, do we define the gospel in terms of the kingdom of God. We don't usually do that. In fact, most of us would define the gospel as forgiveness of sins, maybe atonement, if we want to use a fancy word, or we'll think about the cross of Jesus, or again, maybe a little fancier terminology, justification by faith. What's going on there? If we're right, if what I'm saying tonight is right, that the kingdom of God is what sort of makes sense of the whole Bible, why is it that in the church, our primary way of thinking about what the gospel is and what we're about is in these terms of what in older terminology we might call the Romans road? You know, you're sinful, separated from God, um, and God now uh, can forgive you through Jesus, and now you trust in Him. If you trust in Him and turn to Him, you'll become part of the children of God and have eternal life. Where's the kingdom in all of that? Maybe that's maybe you're like me. September twentieth, nineteen eighty-eight. Someone shared the four spiritual laws with me. Right, freshman, long-haired, pot-smoking freshman on the campus of a state university. Somebody share the four spiritual laws with me. That was the message, and I became a Christian. Maybe that's your story as well. How in the world does that fit in with what we're just saying about the kingdom of God? Let me push it even a little bit more. I've already sort of said that it's in Paul, but if you read Paul, I'll suggest to you that the kingdom of God is clearly there in Paul, but primarily Paul's language isn't about the kingdom. Primarily, he is talking about this language of faith and forgiveness of sins and justification by faith. So is there a difference between Paul and Jesus? I mean, that's how some people would read the Bible, not, you know, believing Christians usually, but some people would say, yeah, Paul and Jesus are actually have different messages. There's a famous line from the early 20th century by a scholar, Jesus preached the kingdom, Paul established the church in this kind of contrastive way. Was there a loss? Was there a change? And why is our understanding of the gospel so different than this sort of whole Bible kingdom idea? Well, the first thing I'd say to that is, I do think Paul is very much about the kingdom. I think it's very clear from his own writings, as well as things that are said about him in Acts. So I think that's a misunderstanding. And let me help you think about that, especially when we think of Paul, we often just think of Romans and what he says there. It's interesting that the end of Romans actually references the kingdom of God, ultimately, after all that discussion in chapter 14. But when you read Paul's letters like Colossians or Ephesians, I think you'll be amazed to see once in light of what we just said tonight, there's a lot of emphasis on Christ as the cosmic king, the one who rules over all. Think of Colossians 1 when he defines the gospel as he's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. There's that kind of language, for example. So I think it actually is there in Paul quite a bit if we have ears to hear and eyes to see. And again, I mentioned the book of Acts where it's Luke describes Paul's ministry as preaching the kingdom of God. So what's going on? What, why this seeming disconnect? Well, I'd like to suggest to you that really, just like kingdom and covenant are two sides of one coin, 
we can and should see that this message of forgiveness, justification by faith, atonement, is not in any way in conflict with kingdom, but actually are two sides of one coin that go together. And that there's actually a very consistent message between the Gospels and Jesus and Paul. One great scholar, Simon Gathercole, distills kind of a common message between Paul and the Gospels and Jesus in these three points. I'll just read them quickly. Jesus was the promised messianic king and son of God who came to earth as a servant in human form. Secondly, Jesus, by his death and resurrection, atoned for our sin and secured our justification by grace. Certainly the Gospels teach that as well. And then Jesus will return and complete what he began by renewing the entire creation through the resurrection of our bodies. It's one way to get at it. Other scholars, Tom Wright, Scott McKnight, put these things together. Here's how I'd put it together in a way that I hope makes sense. I would sum it up with this two pairs of words that... When we read Jesus and Paul together, what we're kind of more used to, more Pauline language, but hopefully now we're adding to it a little bit more kingdom language, I would say that the gospel can be defined with these two sets of words, that it's both cruciform and creational, both personal and panoramic. And what I mean is this, that the gospel that we understand, that we preach and we teach and base our lives on is absolutely cruciform. It is cross-shaped. Any gospel message that does not have that is not the gospel. And this is entirely consistent between Jesus, the one who's preaching the kingdom, who's the crucified king. The gospels show and put great emphasis on the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And it's certainly clear in all the language we're used to from Paul as well. And yet at the same time, It is creational, and this is where probably we, as the evangelical church, probably need to read our whole Bibles a little bit more, and when I say creational here, I'm tying it into the whole from creation to new creation theme of God reigning, and I suggest to you that that is consistent between the Old Testament and Jesus and Paul. We have tended to focus on the cruciform part, but I'd suggest to you that we need to fill that out with this, don't lose that, but fill that out with the creational. And on a kind of another axis, we can axis, we can think of it as both personal and panoramic. When you and I think about um, the gospel, we probably primarily think about it in personal terms, my forgiveness of sins, my relationship with God. And that's not wrong. That's absolutely true. But I'd like to suggest to you in light of what we've seen tonight about the kingdom of God as a whole theme, that it's God, I would describe the Bible's message as God reestablishing his reign from heaven to earth, from creation to new creation, heaven to earth, creation, new creation. That image of the whole Bible's message is more than just personal, includes personal, but it's panoramic. It's the whole scope of things. And I was just to you when you read the Old Testament, that's clear. You read the Gospels, that's clear. And that's really clear in Paul as well. Think of, say, Romans 8, where after all the discussions he's made about forgiveness of sins, He puts the whole thing into the context of God redeeming all of creation itself. So I think these two sets of words can help us, and I think they do challenge us, that if we only have a cruciform and personal gospel, maybe we are missing something. I don't want to lose those, but maybe we need to expand that and connect it into this bigger picture of God's redeeming work in the world from creation to new creation, reestablishing his kingdom from heaven to earth. Okay. So in our last few minutes then here, I wanted to concentrate tonight on the biblical witness. 
In our last few minutes, I want to turn then and say, what does this mean for us today? And there's a lot of other things we could say, but I just want to give a sketch to conclude tonight, four points that should be on your handout as well, of what, if we are to sort of embrace this whole Bible vision of the kingdom of God, what are some things this means for us? First, thing I'd like to point out, that the primary theology of the Bible is a story. It's the story of the triune God's relational activity with his creation. When you and I think theology, we probably think doctrinal statements, maybe village church's confession of faith, or maybe the Apostles' Creed or Nicene. Those are all great. Those are absolutely essential. They're something the church creates, rightly so, especially to um, explain things that are wrong ways of reading the Bible. But the primary theology of the Bible, I'd suggest to you, is actually not doctrinal statements, as good and as essential as those are. The primary theology of the Bible is a story about God's work in the world from creation and new creation from heaven to earth. It's there in Genesis. It's there in the, in, in the book of Revelation. And everywhere, everywhere in between, most of the Bible is a story. Most of the Bible is stories. It's narrative. It's not just for kids, right? The whole Bible is story because God is relating to us in story because we are story people. And whatever other doctrinal and whatever theological things you're committed to and believe in, if you do not have, and if I do not have, if we do not have a sense that the main message of the Bible is the story of God's work in the world, his real work in the world from creation to new creation, I suggest you we have a very thin and truncated and weak understanding of the whole Bible. It is about God's activity in the world for us and through us and in us. It's true of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. One interesting thing that I don't have time to do fully tonight, but is very interesting, and I'm giving a shout-out here to a, um, a professor at RTS Jackson named Carl Ellis, um, and you know some, some of these things were very much inspired by him, and I don't want to misrepresent him, so anything I'm saying that isn't good, don't credit to him, credit to me if it's not good, but I, these things were inspired by him. One of the things he points out is that Majority cultures, like, say, the white church today, have a tendency to think about their faith in cognitive doctrinal terms. And minority cultures, because their experience is very different of usually identity oppression and economic oppression, tend to think about their faith in more ethical and action and narrative terms. It's a very interesting insight, and I think it's really true, and I think um, speaking from, coming from a primarily a white church, although there's diversity here as there is uh, in my church at home, I think this is part of the, the problem we tend to have is that it's very easy for us to boil down our religion into doctrines, which are essential and important, but it's not the whole story. And in fact, I would push this pretty far and say the primary story is this bigger picture of God's work in the world. Just That's all I'll say on that. Let me move on to the second point. The metaphor of kingdom makes crystal clear that the call of the gospel is a call to allegiance. Now, I say metaphor. I didn't really talk about metaphors, but this is what I was talking about. I was talking about scripts running. Kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is not the only way to describe God's relationship with his people. There are other ways. Adoption, redemption, marriage, covenant, um, 
salvation, friendship. We could go on. You could look at a lot. Built a God. We are God's building. We're God's field. There's a hundreds of ways the Bible, different metaphors, the way the Bible describes the relationship between God and humanity. Kingdom of God is not the only one, but I would say it's a very, very important. Obviously, I'm arguing tonight. It's pretty central to the whole story, and. Every metaphor has its own advantages. When we think about God as our shepherd, that has certain ways that it sort of makes us think about our relationship with God. If we think about God as the husband to the church as his bride, that's a different metaphor that communicates different ideas. If we think about God as a savior or as a friend, every metaphor is not the whole story and it evokes certain beautiful truths. Well, I just want to highlight that if we re-embrace this deeply biblical notion of the kingdom of God, one of the things you cannot avoid in that metaphorical relationship between God and humanity is that we're called to allegiance, right? In other words, all the other metaphors, savior, things like that, friend, those are all great. But you cannot avoid the idea if God is a king, and we are his kingdom citizens, the primary sense of that is that we're called to a covenantal faithfulness, which I think can be described greatly with the word allegiance. Right? And that's not work salvation or something. That's a necessary part of this biblical image of God being a king. You can't imagine anyone being a faithful citizen of a kingdom and not caring what the king thinks or the queen thinks, right? Or saying, well, hey, I'm glad you're my king, but you don't really affect my life, right? The point of being God being a king is that we are citizens, and this is a challenges us towards a sort of flippancy or ambivalence or half-heartedness. Third point, Jesus' kingdom vision is designed to re-socialize us, to deconstruct our values and reconstruct them in new kingdom-oriented and God-directed ways that are often very countercultural and unnatural. Jesus' teachings, central of which include the Sermon on the Mount, but all his kingdom teachings, have as their primary purpose forming us to be a different kind of people. When you look at Jesus' parables, for example, they are constantly turning upside down what we think and what we naturally feel and what our society says is right. The children are honored, the ones who have childlike faith, not the high-powered, powerful people. The last will be first. The sinful people, not the holy religious people, are the ones that Jesus honors and puts at the high place at the table. The, The woman who is... A clearly behaviorally a sinful person, but has a heart that makes her worship Jesus and wash his feet with her hair, is valued over the godly, truly godly, law-keeping Pharisee. Everything in Jesus' teachings turns all of our values upside down. And I think it's really helpful to describe this as kind of a re-socializing I bring this up to say that I want you to embrace, and I think this comes into the kingdom image, I want you to embrace that if you want to follow Jesus and be a Christian, that's that certainly is about receiving forgiveness of sins, absolutely. 
The only, the only way in is through the cross and the resurrection. But I would say maybe even more, or at least for sure immediately in pushing, what Jesus is going to do is re-socialize you. He's going to deconstruct a lot of the things that everything in your culture, my culture, your values, even church values a lot of times, have formed us, he wants to turn our loves and our habits, our judgments, our lives upside down that we might learn to be conformed into how God is. And this is a very important aspect of Christianity. And again, it ties into the sort of allegiance idea. To be a Christian doesn't just mean I'm in, now I tell other people about it. It means God is now doing a work to form me to be a certain kind of person. And that's often going to be very unnatural and topsy-turvy. Here's a great quote from Jamie Smith. Christian discipleship is about not only the acquisition of a worldview. In other words, it's not just coming to believe certain doctrines like a lot of times we think. But it's also the inhabitation of a sensibility, a a way of thinking and feeling about the world. To be formed in Christ for missional action, action is to acquire a temperament that guides us beyond and beneath what we think. As David Brooks puts it, in order to act justly and rightly, we first need to learn to perceive the world in the right way. To be formed as image bearers of Christ is to acquire a temperament that is indexed to the kingdom of God. That's a great insight. This is what it means to be a Christian, to have our sensibilities transformed to the ways of the kingdom of God. And finally, and related to all these, the story of the, that the kingdom of God teaches us is that our story is actually God's story. If you think back or look back on your handout to those uh, six acts, even though the Bible goes all the way through and shows us the end of Acts 6 in the book of Revelation, as Bartholomew and Goheen, who you know, created that show, we are actually living in Act 5, Scene 2. We know where Act 6 is going to be. We know from the end of the Bible where it's going to end up. But we are now living in the middle of that story. And what a great image that is. Then, In other words, your story before you're a Christian, and now especially if you are a Christian, is not just about you. Your story is not about whether you're going to get that job and find that right spouse, or your kids are going to be successful in this way, or you're going to have this great retirement. All those things are not really what your story is. Your story is now intersected into God's story of the world. And you and I are situated in Act 5, Scene 2, which means that our approach to the Bible and our approach to our church life together cannot just be one where we think about the Bible and theology, to use the British terminology of bits and bobs, or we would say odds and ends, where we just kind of go to the Bible to find a few things to do, and you know we kind of inform, inform some of the ways, but basically my life is about my story, right? The story of me right? The story of us, right? It's not just about my story that's kind of God, you know, plays a helpful part in or something. Rather, now, if you're a Christian with allegiance to the king, 
your very identity and story is about God's work in the world, and it may just happen to intersect with Dallas, Texas, or Fort Worth, or wherever you are, and he's going to use you in those ways, but your story is not your story. Your story is God's story in the world. And that's actually really good news, because that's something worth giving our lives to, not just you and me trying to orchestrate our own lives. This means our identity is not primarily our country, the country of Texas, or the other part that you're a part of, the United States. Uh, Our country, our job, our family, our wealth, our education, our hopes, our background, even our local church, none of those are actually our identity, but God's story. And one of the little ways this can come out is just watch out for allegiances to people and causes and visions that aren't really to the kingdom of God. I am of Chandler. I am of Piper. I am of JT. I am of Jen. I am of Pennington. Oh God, no, for sure not. Who cares about all the other things we might find our identity in? All of those are not what our real story is. We are now part of a kingdom that is on the move. We are unified with a king who is on the move. We are in the middle of God's redemptive work in the world. And that is good news. So to conclude tonight, I just want to invite you um, from all that we've said, and thank you for your excellent attention over all these words, about 10,000 words I've said to you, I keep track. Of all these words, I want to invite you to something more than words, which is an invitation to taste and see that our God is a glorious, beautiful, perfect, loving, and lovely King in all his glory from creation to new creation. He is at work reestablishing his reign. The things that you long for, all that you long for in terms of health and success and prosperity and relationships of love and joy and peace and meaningful work, the very fact that you have those longings show that that's how God is and what he's made you for. And I want to invite you to say, that's what the message of the Bible is inviting you into. Not into just a bunch of beliefs and not into just adding a little few things to your life to make it better, but he's inviting you and calling you into the story of his own work in the world. And that is a glorious and beautiful truth, well worth giving our lives to. Amen? Let me pray for us. Thank you, our Heavenly Father, uh, that what we've said is not just a great idea, but it is the truth of how we're made and who you are. And Jesus, you know my heart that it is fickle. I know my brothers and sisters, their hearts are fickle. You know that my life is marked by inconsistency. I know that's true of my brothers and sisters here as well. Jesus, we bow our hearts as beautiful king to you tonight. We we say that you alone are worthy of all of our hopes and our identity and our dreams. We're, we're so often distracted by so many other things that are claiming and desiring our allegiance and attention. We pause tonight and say, none of those things are going to satisfy. None of those things are worth giving our whole life to. We humble ourselves. We hear your voice, Jesus, and we repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. And we turn from ourselves to you and praise you that you're beautiful and good and perfect and lovely and all that we long for.
And we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I want to invite you again, if you do have questions over something that was said or perhaps something that wasn't that you wanted to have be addressed, please visit this website, sli.do slash tbcforums. Or if you don't have a question and and you want to just uh, see what other questions are being asked, you can actually vote for questions there too and kind of push votes up. So we'll spend the next 20 minutes or so just asking some questions. The first one for you is this. Why do you think the teaching of the kingdom of God has been largely ignored in American Christianity, perhaps over the last 50, 60 years or, or any time frame? Why is this something maybe that is fresh and new that hasn't been considered by American evangelicals? Yeah, that's a great question and an important one, I think, for us. I was trying to address that, but I didn't give the kind of history of it. Um, yeah, I mean, it certainly was the case that from the early church on, this was a major idea, uh, the kingdom of God. And then it, it was lost. It's hard to say exactly when and where. It probably was lost at different times. But in the American evangelical scene, um, it's not brand new. In fact, um, there's a scholar you may have heard of, George Eldon Ladd. You know, just, you know, in the 50s and 60s, uh, he was talking this way a lot, and so it's not entirely new to the evangelical tradition. But what I think happened primarily was at the end of the 1800s and then into the early 1900s, there was a really tragic split in American church history, and we call it the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Um, what had happened was, you know, um, Darwinism and various other aspects of um the American Christian scene had increasingly been splitting apart, and there rose this pretty two distinct versions of Christianity. We might call one liberal or modernist, and and then kind of a hunkering down and a sort of very conservative fundamentalism. And what happens when you have those splits is that both sides tend to run to the extreme, especially in America. America is a country of extremes, and we tend to really run to the extreme. And unfortunately, the more liberal side of the church talked a lot about the kingdom, and they really liked the Gospels. And they actually, this is what arose, kind of thing we call the social gospel, where they put a lot of emphasis on Jesus is about helping the poor and helping people. Well, because that was unfortunately, even though that was true, that was tied with a lot of more liberal theology, the more conservative people ran the other way really strongly and talk, and really didn't talk about the kingdom because as soon as you said kingdom, that kind of evoked all this kind of more liberal version. And so there became a real emphasis on Paul and forgiveness of sins and the inerrancy of the Bible and all these kind of things that are also important, but they kind of became extremes. And so what happens, what happened over time then is that kind of, you know, we, those two groups stopped talking to each other and they both lost as a result, I would say. Thankfully, in the 1950s and 60s, with the rise of what we call evangelicalism, really, there was an emphasis on the kingdom, but it's just kind of taken a while for it to kind of soak in more, I think, into evangelical theology. I think that's how I describe it. That's so, great. Wonderful. Yep. This is uh, a question that's right up your alley. If somebody knows his background academically, it has to do exactly with this question. So if you mess this one up, we might as well just pray and close it down. <laughs> there's nobody's thought about this more than you. What's the difference between heaven and the kingdom of God. Okay. So kingdom of heaven or just Yeah, so, well, so okay. it's interesting because Jesus uses language in the Sermon on the Mount. Yep. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yep. But he also goes about preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Yeah. Is there a difference between these two things? When we think about maybe life after death, we think about going yeah, to heaven. Yeah. How does that right. relate to the right. kingdom of God? Maybe just kind of tease some of that out. Yeah, so let me answer. Those are two related but separate questions. So first on the more kind of lower level question of, it is true that in Matthew, what Jesus says is the kingdom of heaven. 
And everywhere else in the New Testament, it says kingdom of God. Um, some people, a minority report in times past, including in this very city, um, there's a certain sort of theological group that actually emphasized that those were two different things. Um, the kingdom of heaven was the a, a different time and era for different people than the kingdom of God. Um, I, I don't think that's a good argument at all. I think you can easily show that's not the case in the Gospels, that kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are used interchangeably. They don't refer to different things. So why? Why does Matthew call it the kingdom of heaven, and why does the, everybody else call it the kingdom of God? Well, the short answer, I'd suggest to you, is that short meaning I wrote a 350-page book on this, but here's the short answer, um, is that, uh, makes a great stocking stuffer, as I always like to say, um, is that even though they have the same referent or denotation, for Matthew to say kingdom of heaven is a very powerful way to emphasize the contrast between God in heaven versus kings on the earth, okay? Uh, so God has a heavenly kingdom, and his way of ruling and reigning is very different than how humanity rules and reigns. And so Matthew, I think, plays with that and ha- and describes Jesus' teaching as about the kingdom of heaven to emphasize that contrast, okay? I think maybe a more important question is, I think what was maybe more specifically asked, how does the kingdom of God relate to this idea of heaven? Because just like um, we talk about the gospel as forgiveness of sins primarily in our tradition. Part of that has also been that when you die, you go to heaven. That's a typical way we talk about it. How in the world does that relate to the kingdom of God? Well, I think the best way to think about it is to remember that if you actually read the Bible through, the end game is actually not heaven. Even though in sort of 19th century hymns and our tradition, that's what we started to sing a lot about and think about, it's really clear that Heaven is not the end of the book of Revelation. What actually happens at the end of the book of Revelation? God's heavenly kingdom comes to earth. The big point of the whole message of the Bible is God is actually engaged with his creation. He's renewing it, and including us, renewing it. This is why the resurrection is important, not just the death of Jesus. The resurrection does a lot of things, but one of them, it inaugurates the new creation itself, including with Jesus' resurrection body and ours finally. And maybe the easiest way to see it is actually in the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, this central prayer that Jesus teaches that really frames how we think about the world and God. How does it start? Let your name be sanctified or hallowed be your name. I always like to say, we only use hallow for two things. It used to be just Halloween. Now we've got another good one. Um, uh, deathly hallows. Those are, those are the two we have, right? But besides, we don't really, hallow just means sanctified. So let your name be sanctified. Let your kingdom or reign come. Let your will be done. Those three things. As those things are true in heaven, let them also be true on earth. That's at the core of the Christian theology, that we are the people living in a time when there there is a heaven. God is in heaven, and in heaven, the angels honor him. The people worship him. His name is hallowed. His reign is complete. It's de jure. It's real. And his will is done. But that's not fully the case here on the earth right now. He's still generally, but he's going to come again and bring his reign from heaven to earth. So the difference between the heaven and the kingdom of God is that heaven is a temporary, it's a current place that is looking forward to something bigger and greater and deeper, which is when God's reign comes fully upon the earth. 
So. That's an excellent answer. Uh, if that's kind of a new... But... Op- no, yes, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> no. uh, if that's new for you, like if that's something you're like, I've never thought of that before, um, a, a, I'm going to give a shout out to the Bible Project again. Just Google Heaven and Earth Bible Project. They have a great about six minute video explaining exactly oh, what you just explained that. here, which is kind of this visual representation of the, the primary movement in the Bible is not humanity going to God, but God bringing his heaven to us and invading his world here. And it does that really beautifully kind of in some imagery. So great. Next question. I love this question. Uh, how should a proper understanding of the kingdom of God, all that we've learned tonight and thinking about and the way the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, impact the way we share our faith, yeah. evangelistic conversations? If Jesus goes about preaching the gospel of the kingdom, perhaps we should be doing that too. Yeah, that is, no, that's a, not only an interesting question, but I love the heart of that question. I mean, that's really good. Yeah, because this message, so obviously what that means is when you go share your faith, you need an 80-minute lecture <laughs> tracing the whole story of the Bible from creation. You got it. You got it down, right? Okay, so just do that. On the airplane, people will love you. It's going to be awesome. Um, you did that on the way here, right? Yeah, exactly, yeah. right. Three times. Yeah. It, was, uh, it was advantage of the delayed flights. Uh, yeah, we're on the water cooler at work. Yeah. Just 80-minute lectures right. on the theme of the kingdom of God. Yeah, um, it is a very good question. I mean, I would say that there's absolutely nothing wrong or broken, really, about how we traditionally think about evangelism. God loves you, you know, however, however you might describe it. We're sinful and broken and in need of forgiveness. Jesus died on the cross for our sins um, and invites us into forgiveness in a relationship with him. That's absolutely true. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. That's how this 18-year-old got saved, right? That's And many others in here as well. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's 100% true. It's just not the whole message of the Bible. But there's nothing wrong with it. And God is happy to use us in all of our incompleteness, right? But that message that we just described is actually part of this bigger story that that is the way in which God ultimately establishes his reign upon the earth is through Jesus coming and enthroned. I love that. Video is very powerful. Um, Jesus is enthroned ultimately on the cross and in his resurrection, not just the cross, in his resurrection as well. And that's the means, and it's personal to us. It's not only panoramic, it's also personal. So uh, I still haven't answered your question, but I just want to encourage you. There's nothing wrong. You don't have to go home and like tear up. Let's have a four spiritual laws burning party, <laughs> ah, you know, or something, pitchforks and crusades headquarters or something. Uh, far from it. Um, Instead, I would encourage you, at least in the first instance, make sure you have in your mind that whenever you're talking with someone about the gospel, you're not, the gospel is not just the message of Jesus' death on the cross for my sins. It's something even more powerful and larger that God is restoring life to his own world and inviting us to be a part of that. And the way you are, the only way you can enter into that is through allegiance and following and trust in uh, Jesus, including his death and resurrection. So, I mean, I think you can describe it the same way, but I think even with just a few additions to your, your verbiage, your language, you and I could say, you know, um, we, you and I long for true life. You and I long for a time and a place that things are right and just and a, and a, a season and a, or not just a season, a, an existence where there is, I like to talk about as true human flourishing. That's what God has built for us and is in our hearts. You know, don't you long for that as well? And the way you get into that and the way that we can be aligned with that when God returns is through 
the, the gracious gift of Jesus' death and resurrection that we might be unified with him. So I would just kind of take the same message that we're used to of the gospel and just kind of expand it and deepen it and kind of rifle it through with a little bigger part of the story of the Bible. I hope that helps. That's excellent. Uh, there are some good resources that do this from Crusade and some other yep. places. I don't know, maybe you could... Yeah, there, there, there are a few resources talking about kind of storying the Bible. If you just Google storying the Bible, there's some good resources there. For those of you who are in the training program and maybe interested, or if you're not in the training program, but interested in maybe more of a kind of a, a longer treatment specifically related to allegiance, Matthew Bates' new book, it's called Salvation by Allegiance Alone. He's talking about how allegiance kind of encapsulates this faith idea, but also allegiance to a king. And so you can, as you're sharing the gospel, ask people the question, what are the things that you give yourself to? What are the things that have your allegiance? What are the things, and does God have your allegiance? Have you given your, your identity? Your faith, your identity? Things, yeah, yeah. Right. exactly. Okay, that's, that's good. good. Uh, this is an interesting question and one that I've kind of wondered about sometimes myself. If Satan, and maybe we can even broaden this question a little bit because I have the iPad and I'm going to do it. Um, if Satan is the prince of this world, or perhaps you could even think like Ephesians language, like our battle is against flesh and blood, against the rulers, powers, authorities, uh, and in the spiritual places, has God given up his kingdom in this temporary sense to Satan or to evil forces? Or uh, how would you explain yeah. kind of these two kingdoms, perhaps? Yeah. I don't know if that's I mean, there, there is a mystery and a paradox in that. It's another good question. Um, but I, I would just reiterate what I said. The difference between, and we don't know why God is doing this, but we can trust in his goodness and his wisdom that he does rule by right. I mean, God is ruling. The Bible is very clear that God is ruling over all the world still, right? I mean, he always has from creation to new creation. He hasn't given it up. It's just that in his work of redeeming the world, he has chosen to allow there to be a time not where he's not ruling, but where his reign is not complete and full. There's rebellion within his within his reign. We don't know why exactly, except for I'm glad that he didn't shut it down in 1987. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right, and I got to be part of it in 1988 um, and, and on. So we don't know why. There's a mystery to that. I, I cannot help but think of the book of Job. The first two chapters is this picture. You know, it's very clear that God is ruling over all that happens in Job's life from the Old Testament, but he he allows some extra leash to Satan, right, to go and make Job suffer. Is God never, is God not sovereign during that whole time? Of course he is, but in the wisdom and paradox that we don't understand, he allows there to be rebellion and, and evil. It's, you're, it's tying into the the most difficult theological question there is, the POE, the problem of evil. If all If God is all good and all sovereign, then why is there evil in the world? Sorry, I shouldn't have raised it. You were living happily. <laughs> you're, you were very happy before that moment. Sorry, I've just ruined your lives because there is no easy answer to that at all. Do right? not Google that question because you will go to the deep places of yeah, the sorry. internet that nobody needs to go. We take that back, sphere. right? So, yeah. But, uh, this, this next question, I think, has something a little bit to do with that. Matt uses this language a lot when he talks about uh, kind of these concepts in his sermons, but it's the relationship between God's kingdom having already been established and God's kingdom still coming to be established. So Jesus talks about the kingdom is here in your midst. He's establishing it and inaugurating it in his resurrection and ascension, but yet there's still so much suffering. I, why, why, why are we suffering? And not just problem of evil, but like, why are we not experiencing this already existence? And maybe talk about some of the problems related to uh, inaugurated eschatologies or inaugurated kingdoms that could perhaps promise too much in this present age. Mm. Okay. Uh, was there a question? 90 that, seconds. Right? <laughs> right, no. Yeah. So uh, if I understand what you're getting at, yeah, I mean, it is a, um, again, I always happy to start with paradox and mystery. I mean, I think a lot of times we 
uh, don't have enough space for that in our doctrinal emphasis, that there are things we don't understand and we have to sort of embrace. I, I often describe it as like we like to take our American-made leaf blowers into the Shekinah glory and just give it all the Shekinah glory cloud that's bothering my doctrinal precision, you know? Just blow this scrap out of here, right? So take that back. That's going to be in your, your, as you go to bed tonight, that's what you'll be thinking about. So I I think we need to embrace that that we just, we don't know what's going on, but we can explain some things. Let me all say two things. One, explain some things and then talk about some mistaken views that are, these two things are related. One is that thing that life comes through death. I, I mean, there's a paradox in that, but it's also just apparent. It's in plants and seeds, in parents to children passing on. I mean, it's in Jesus as the ultimate sort of example of this. For there to be resurrection life, there must be death. And in a post-fall world, that is a universal principle. Um, and so I think for us, um, you know, even though we are ones who are unified with the risen one and our goal is human flourishing and God promises and is at work in human flourishing, there's this paradox that we can taste and see is true, though, that it's often the most life comes through death and suffering. You know, you think of even completely secular situations, you know, all the famous people who end up having hugely successful companies, they all like failed 19 times beforehand, you know, so even just at a purely secular level, you can kind of see this work out, but at a more deeply spiritual level in our lives, I bet every one of us could testify, if we've been around a few years at least, that it was through the suffering and the pain and the loss and the infertility and the death and the... All, all the ways that suffering comes to the world that we, none of us would have ever wanted. Broken marriages and prodigal children and everything. Cancers are horrible things that there comes a point when we get on the other side of it and we can see that while it was real pain and suffering, not to be treated tritely, God was in it and there was a new kind of life that came out of it, right? That's, that's the eyes of faith and not only just the eyes of faith, that grunting it out, that is the experience of God's people. Life comes through death. And so that would relate to the second thing I'd say. What are some misperceptions? Well, it's that there's no suffering in the kingdom now. There is. This is the great danger of what we might call the health and wealth gospel or something, which is half right, right? That God is about our prosperity and our success and our peace and our flourishing and our life and our Joy. That's absolutely true. But without the paradox of in this time that comes in and is woven through and just like a great steak is not just the meat, but it's marbled with fat or something. So too, our joys and our flourishing in this age is inevitably pockmarked with suffering and loss and pain. It doesn't make the joy any less real. In fact, in some ways it heightens it. Right? As we long for a time when all will be restored. So I don't think you can get any, you can't blow any more of that uh, <laughs> kind of glory away than that, I think. But I'd love to hear what you'd say. No, that, I, th- I so. think that's, I think that's a great answer. And, um, just yeah, agree. Yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to answer right, my own so. question. I'm just right, not going to do okay. that. That's fine. I'll leave that for Matt. Uh, so here, here is, here's two, nobody tell him I said that. 
Here are, here are two questions that are, are very, very similar. And you did speak about this at the end. I'd just love to hear you talk about it a little bit more, especially when you're talking about kind of some of the Carl Ellis's work. Um, and we hear this language a lot. We use this language at the village from time to time. Uh, what are some practical implications of being like kingdom citizens? We talked about panoramic and personal. Like what, what maybe would be, like as you think maybe about your life, like what have been some practical implications as you think about the kingdom of God coming to reign and rule in your life and in your family? What have been some implications for you? Getting personal here, yeah. right? Yeah. I'd prefer just to talk about it theoretically <laughs> if I could. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, on, on the church-wide level, I mean, I, I think it is an incredibly exciting time in our generation. I know this church, Sojourn Churches I'm involved with. Um, it's a great time that we are realizing that the work of the gospel and God's work in the world is more than just me getting saved so that I can go to heaven, right? It's engagement with culture. It's engagement with those in need. Well, it's exactly what James says, to help what is pure religion? To help the widow and the orphan, right? And I think that also includes engaging in the creation mandate of engaged in the arts and all kinds of uh, adding beauty to the world and caring for the poor and those in need, um, psychologically as well as economically and racially, oppressed people, all that. And I think it's a time where we're doing that better than probably several generations of the church. I think that's one of the um, great things about sort of embracing a bigger kingdom orientation, not just a me personal forgiveness orientation. So I think it's happening. Um, I encourage you more. Um, when it comes to me personally, um, two things to say. One, um, I have noticed, again, we have six kids, two in college now and one about to go. So we're kind of, it's winding down. Thankfully, it's been a long, long haul. Um, but Can I get an amen? That's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 21, 22 years we've been at it now. Um, and one of the things over the years that I think this has certainly impacted me is just casting a vision very imperfectly. I'm a terribly imperfect father, but casting a vision to my kids about what Christianity is. It's the, it's the hope of God restoring things restoring us and restoring his creation. That's the primary way I've talked about it, both in good times and in December 26 times, as I like to call them, right? The day after Christmas when you're a kid, is there any worse day in the world, right? <laughs> 364 more days, right? Um, you know, the, the December 26 moments of all of our lives, when things break and relationships break and people break and bodies break and and jobs break and you know, all of our toys and all the things we hope for break. Um, those moments, the message that God is redeeming us and his whole creation looking forward to the end, that's the only thing that really gives hope in those moments. So I've tried to cast a vision of that to my kids very imperfectly. So in times of sadness, but also in times of their brokenness when they blow it. I've noticed this, you know, I've, I've, I've had a lot of teenagers. I have four boys and two girls. I've had a lot of teenage boys and they are um, oddly driven um, to reproduce. And that's uh, a, a very normal thing. And this, I don't know where they get that, but um, <laughs> my six kids. Um, the, <laughs> what I've noticed in these moments with them where I've had to address issues related to reproduction, that the, you know, of course, I, I, I say to them, I don't 
I don't expect you to be perfect in any of these areas, right? That's not what the message of the gospel is. You now have to get your act together to be perfect. The message of God's work in the world is this is broken, you're broken, but God's inviting you into a way of being in the world that will promise life to you and and to your future and to your children and my grandchildren, dang it, right? But uh, the, you know, this, it's, it's a vision of the gospel is not just the sort of judicial transactional thing. You're bad. Now you're not supposed to do bad anymore. It's instead, yeah, of course this is all broken. Of course you're going to make mistakes. I make mistakes too. We need to have a vision. I'm inviting you into a vision, son, of, that God wants to redeem all parts of our lives and work in us and transform us and for our good. He wants us to live in wisdom so that we can experience true human flourishing. That's just one thing that comes to mind as I think about sort of thinking of the gospel in these bigger terms as it relates to parenting. I think it's so. a beautiful way to, to, to think about that. Here's what I'd like to do. I want to spend a few minutes just praying, uh, uh, just thanking the Lord for nights like tonight, but also as we think about this sermon series coming up, that we might not just think about it as just a sermon series, but that as Jesus teaches us in his prayer, that our fundamental disposition and orientation would be to God and asking him to bring his kingdom. And that we might be a church, and that all of our campuses might be places in DFW that are asking for God to bring his kingdom here and now, and that we'd be kind of disposed to God in this way. We'd say, we are helpless, but you are a helper, and you're the one who will come. So I want to just pray for the next few minutes, if you would join me in praying, asking God to bring that in our own lives, in our city, and ultimately into the world, and then we'll close up. To you, Father, and to the Son, and to the Spirit, we offer all honor and glory and praise tonight, because you are our true King. And as we see uh, Jesus enthroned as our king, we are taught about an upside-down kingdom, that you reign uh, not from a palace in Rome, but you reign from a cross in Jerusalem. And it shows that it's true, Philippians chapter 2, that because you were willing to do that, that God has exalted you, our Lord Jesus Christ, and you are uh, given the name that's above every name. You are our true king. And so we pray right now in this moment, would you Send us your spirit, and would you use your spirit in our hearts and our lives to reorient us, to change our sensibilities, to change our loves, to change our disposition to you, that the things in our lives that might have our allegiance, and that might have our affection and attention and devotion, would you in this moment by your spirit transform our hearts so that we might look a little bit more like kingdom citizens. I pray for our church as we spend the next several months considering the things of the kingdom, that our hearts would be good soil, and as the gospel message goes forth and as the word is preached, that it might find, that the gospel word might find good soil, and that we would orient ourselves to your kingdom. I pray primarily for each of our campuses. I think of all of them in this moment, and I ask that we would pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, that it would come in Flower Mound, in Dallas, in Fort Worth, in Southlake, in Plano, and in Oak Cliff, and in Louisville, and in Argyle, and all around us, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Might your gospel of the kingdom go forward. Help us to be the kind of church that is praying for these things, but also acting towards these things. Resocialize us, reorient us to the world so that we might be kingdom citizens. Lord Jesus, we uh, want to be this until you come. We are looking so forward to you returning and coming. We ask, just like the book of Revelation does at the end, would you come quickly, Lord Jesus? Would you take all that is broken in this world, all that brings us pain, 
And would you bring healing? Would you bring hope? Would you bring your kingdom? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you do me one more favor? Thank Dr. Pennington again for coming. Uh, I just have one brief announcement, and it'll be dismissed. This only is for our training program students. I just want you to know we're not done. We have uh, a lot more of this tomorrow, and we will be over at the Highland Village campus from 9 to 4. We will have breakfast for you, but breakfast doesn't start at 9. The teaching starts at 9. So if you would like breakfast, breakfast come at about 8, 10, 8, 15. We'll have coffee, breakfast. We'll be hanging out, uh, and then we'll go from 9 to 4. We also have lunch provided for you. Just one last thing as I just thought of it now. If you're interested in the training program, this is what we do. This is what we're doing on a, on a weekly basis. We would love for you to apply. We only have uh, 125 spots in Flower Mound and 125 in Dallas each year, but we welcome and invite your applications. We would love to see a lot of you here next year and uh, in, in, in participating with us. Applications will go live in April, so be on the lookout for that, or feel free to ask any of us or anybody that you know in the training program questions. Love you all. So grateful you came. Have a wonderful night. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.